Ortho members and guests, welcome to the Peas Ortho podcast as we continue to bring you parts of the 2021 POSNA Hybrid Virtual Annual Meeting. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt University. Not all content from subspecialty sessions will be recorded and available in the virtual format, so this will be your only chance to, to hear this content unless you attend the session in person. Today, we are covering the lower extremity subspecialty day session. Uh, we have with us our moderators for that session, Drs. Phil McClure from the International Center of Limb Lengthening in Baltimore, and also Dr. Megan Young from Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Phil and Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, so as a bit of a quick announcement before we get down to the session, um, while nearly all of our annual meeting content is being pre-recorded like this session, there will be one live episode of the podcast recorded at the annual meeting with our available podcast hosts and a research panel made up of presenters from that day's general session. That'll be Dr. Colin May, Colleen Sabatini, John Schenker, and Salil Upasini. This will take place Wednesday following the pre-course prior to the scientific session. So please look for signs and information in the program. And we're hoping for an audience uh, and hoping for some crowd participation to help resolve or stir up some controversies in trauma and infection. For this particular session, we have uh, found three papers that have been selected from the session to be highlighted. And we will have the opportunity today to go into a little bit more detail with the presenting authors on those papers. So on the line with us tonight, we have uh, Sam Abu Samra from Children's Hospital of LA. Sam, welcome. Hey, good evening. Thank you for having me. And we also have David Feldman from the Paley Institute in West Palm Beach, Florida. Thanks, David. Very welcome. Very yeah. Thank you very much. And um, last, uh, we have uh, Vanna Rocky uh, in Portsmouth, Virginia. And so before we actually get into the material, I'm going to put, uh, put the four of you on the spot real quick just to let our uh, podcast kind of listeners get to know a little bit about you. Um, instead of just hearing you launch into your abstract. So um, maybe we'll start with our moderators. If someone just wants to tell us the first thing that jumps to mind about your favorite thing about your career, and maybe in particular the subspecialty portion you're in uh, with lower extremity deformity. I'll, I'll take that. Um, so I'm Phil McClure. I'm in Baltimore at the International Center for Limb Lengthening. Um, you know, similar to setup in Florida, we have the privilege of dealing with a lot of really interesting and different and rare conditions um, and paired up with, you know, pinning a supracondylar every once in a while. It's really a pretty special opportunity as a pediatric orthopedist to be able to take care of the full spectrum um, of congenital and uh, traumatic deformities and uh, diseases. So, you know, it's been a blast. I, you know, I haven't been doing it for super long, but uh, I feel very grateful for to be able to do it. Thanks, Phil. Megan? Yeah, so um, my practice started a little bit more general and broad with a lot of trauma and infection, and it's been really fun to watch it evolve over the last several years uh, into more of a lower extremity practice and limb deformity. And now that I've been at this for a while, it's been really fun to see these patients grow and see the effects of the surgery and how you can impact their life and um, being able to give them that sort of life plan and follow them until maturity so you can... Uh, keep them at, at doing what they do best. And so David and Sam, I'll extend the same question to you guys. What is kind of your favorite thing about whether it's orthopedics or peds orthopedics or your particular subspecialty? Just because the people listening are going to be a lot of trainees and fellows who are trying to figure out what to do with their lives. 
So I, yeah, I'll start. This is Sam Abu Samra. Uh, what, what I like about orthopedics and deformity in specifics is the reconstruction part of it. Uh, the technical challenge is definitely something interesting, and I see a lot of hope, and uh, it's great to, clo- to work very closely with the patients. So uh, I enjoy every case. Uh, yeah, and this is probably the most I enjoy about it. So I, uh, I mean, I'll just echo most of what everybody said. I'm David Feldman from now from Paley Institute in West Palm Beach, been here for about five years now. And I, I think for now, the part of my career is that I can solve problems that seem almost unsolvable to me before. I've been doing this for a long time. I'd, you know, I was at NYU forever in New York, and now I came down here to really focus on, for me, arthrogryposis and MHE and hip dysplasia, and a couple of really significant conditions that I can really make a difference on and, and seemingly problems that we couldn't solve before. I never thought were were solved well enough for us to get good outcomes we can really focus on so that's where where really you know focusing your attention on certain conditions like phil said really i find exciting at this point in my career well i'm hearing a lot of commonalities it seems like um you know coming from more of a generalist or the peds orthopedist like i am i certainly have an interest in deforming and i think it's incredibly interesting but um, I would say that I certainly just ride on the shoulders of uh, individuals like you who are kind of doing this research and pushing things forward. Um, but it sounds like you all really appreciate the technical challenges and um, the reconstructive aspects of this unique patient population. And um, I think you summed it up pretty nicely there, Dr. Feldman, of solving things that seemed kind of unsolvable before um, with some of the coolest toys in orthopedics, I'll have to say. Um, so we're going to start off um, with you, Sam. We're going to discuss the work from your team that's titled Angular Deformity Before and After Temporary Epipsiodesis for Limb Length Discrepancy. So this is 20 patients over 20 years that were treated with temporary epipsiodesis of the femur, tibia, or both for limb length discrepancy as the primary indication. Um, You reviewed their records, uh, particularly for occurrence of angular deformity, which you defined as a change in the mechanical axis deviation of greater than a centimeter. Uh, strikingly, 65% of the patients met that criteria of final follow-up, i.e. they uh, had um, they were neutral at the beginning, but then they had mechanical ac- uh, axis deviation of greater than a centimeter um, after their treatment. And so your conclusion is that this technique should be used cautiously. Um, I'd like to turn it over to our moderators now to kind of follow up on uh, the main takeaways. So I'll ask the, uh, the first question, Dr. Abusama, that- uh, pretty high incidence of coronal deformity. Um, I think there's other papers suggesting that sagittal deformity isn't tremendously uncommon with this technique. Uh, are there technical factors, you know, screw divergence, you know, putting the plate in and compression, locking plates, you know, things that you think played into the relatively high incidence or how, what can we take from this? Well, I think, uh, I think part of it is, is still unknown, but I do still think that part of it is probably technical. Now, whether we know exactly what's, what's the f- technical factor, I don't know. We tried to measure a few things, but then we found that there's plenty of things that you can look at, and we didn't really find any pattern. There's a couple of cases that you can see clearly that along the follow-up, there you can see some imbalance, like one plate starting to pull out, maybe wasn't paid attention to it. So that makes the other plate work more and deviate the axis. But there were only two patients out of 
the like out of the number that deviated. So still, some patients, I think we don't know. We might know if we look more into it. We need more patients to establish a pattern. But uh, I think overall, uh, still the conclusion is is valid that it needs. It's a good technique, probably in certain situations, but it needs just to be used cautiously. And if you ever do it, just keep a close eye on the patient. So several um, authors have cited the limitation of using these tension band plates and suppressing the longitudinal growth. And as we talked about, they're not fixed angle constructs. So I'm just um, questioning in your series, did you actually achieve the desired shortening or did you measure the overall effect on the leg length discrepancy? So for those patients, uh, I would say most of them, yes. Uh, I know it's not very effective. It's not as effective as permanent uh, drilling, and that's been published before. We didn't look at this. We didn't compare with permanent uh, uh, drilling. Uh, that might be a future work. But uh, for most of them, I would say, yes, uh, they had the, like, or the desired correction in terms of leg length. But uh, still, uh, the deviation is, uh, I mean, it wasn't for some patients, they started probably with some valgus, and then with the deviation, they, it became neutral. So it wasn't clinically a problem for them. But I know for a couple of patients, it was a problem, and they required uh, osteotomy to, for correction. Was there, a, was there a timeline to it? Did patients start to deviate early, or did some pick up later? Any way you could predict or... I know we can't have statistical yeah. significance on this, but... Right. Yes, we couldn't... Establish, we looked at this as well, but we couldn't find any good pattern. You know, they had it at different ages, and it's all related to growth. But probably what makes sense is whenever they had this growth spurt that usually helps, there's probably in certain situations it didn't help, and it caused the deformity to get worse. But yeah, we couldn't really find... I don't think it's related to the time uh, of surgery. It's just related to the growth, to the age probably. But we couldn't find it. It's a small number of patients. Uh, yeah, but again, still, uh, it's, I think it's just uh, attention needs to be paid. So whenever we like, look forward for this growth to get more correction, we just need to pay attention. Now, the balance between the two plates should be a factor and makes sense that it is a factor, but we uh, and we need to study this further. I don't know how to create this, this perfect balance. When we do hemi, epiphysiodesis, it's more forgiving. It's only one side, and it's going to tether the physis to some extent, so the other part is, is fine. But when we tether both parts, the lateral and medial, we need to have some perfect balance uh, that I don't know if, if we can always achieve. So has your group, based on your results, uh, abandoned this technique, or are, are you still using it? And if so, who would be your ideal patient? And do you have any technical tips of how to apply these tension band plates so maybe they can maximize their effect but reduce the risk of getting some sort of um, mechanical axis deviation or malalignment? Yeah, thank you, Megan. Uh, I would say we still uh, go sometimes back and forth with, with discussion. Uh, now, definitely... Uh, everybody now is more cautious when they use it. Uh, I think it's a good technique still for some patients. Now, uh, what I really think is that probably you need to stay away from it if you want to do like somebody who's 11 or 12 or close to maturity. So I mean, probably if you time it well and do permanent drilling, that's just safer and, and it's more predictable and more effective. 
Uh, but like for somebody who's five or six with big leg length discrepancy, let's say hemihypertrophy, and you want to slow down this big leg from just growing very fast, probably it's still a good technique. You don't want to commit to stopping the growth permanently. And I think the reversible part of it is, is attractive. Uh, now, whether it's effective or not, uh, I don't know, this needs to be... Uh, I mean, definitely, it, it does something. Now, the, as technical, like the technique, I don't know. There's no evidence. Probably if you just use long screws, overlap them, so maybe they just have equal tether on the physis, but that's just my opinion. I don't know if, if there's... Probably if we look more into it. But then there's more now uh, uh, caution about using this technique for uh, older patients who are close to maturity. And how about your screws? What pattern of screws? Do you try to get them more divergent? So maybe they sort of kick in a little bit faster or what, what would you recommend for the screw placement? I personally go for parallel. Uh, I don't know if there's any evidence as far as I know. There hasn't been really good evidence that favors one pattern, but uh, I, I try parallel. Sometimes if, if for any reason the physis pattern forces you to diverge a little bit, uh, but uh, I try to keep them parallel. Uh, yeah, but I'm not sure there's good evidence behind that. Uh, Dr. Abbasama, one one more question for me. Yeah. Um, it's not exactly a fair question, I'll admit, you know, based on your paper, but do you think we'd see the same thing with metazo screws and anything that's reversible where we have to have a symmetric tether, or do you think this is unique to tension band plates? Yeah, uh, I, I have no good experience with uh, with uh, metastasis screws. Uh, I use uh, the screws for hemiapostodesis for anterior hemiapostodesis only. Uh, I don't use them for the coronal uh, uh, correction. So I'm not sure. Probably, if uh, just a quick uh, thought, maybe the screws might be uh, better, like anchored and devices. Uh, so probably it's less of a problem. But I don't know. Have you seen any problem? I don't know if you use them. Have you seen any problem with that? Uh, my practice has been, you know, with this technique, very limited. Um, you know, I had the good fortune to be able to work in Utah for a few years with Peter Stevens. He uses this a lot. Um, the group there, they've got a, about a dozen, you know, really excellent peds orthopedists. And they're about split on, you know, whether they use the eight plate for this or if they just do permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, probably fertile ground to do a study there and, and you know, the, with the practice variability. Mm-hmm. But I uh, I use metazo screws for angle largely in older kids because it's faster mm-hmm. and they get back to, you know, especially medial distal femur, they get moving faster. But for tension or for uh, for length, I just try to time it and do it a, a permanent epiphysis outside of, you know, a very small number of conditions, hemihypertrophy mm-hmm. or someone has a bad hip and we're trying to maintain equal leg lengths without right. a plan to lengthen in the future. Yeah, no, I agree, Phil. I agree with you exactly. I try to time it if the patient is close to maturity. For younger patients, certain conditions, I think it's still uh, still probably a valid option. Uh, and the point is not that this technique is not useful or it's not good, but it's just like that needs to be done with, with caution, uh, with close follow-up. Uh, yeah, but uh, definitely I think there's, there's lots of potential for more uh, research in, in this area. Before we move on, um, I usually don't ask questions during the sessions, but I did want to get um, Dr. Young, Dr. Feldman, Dr. Rochi, see if you all had any preference on our opinions on tension band plates versus the metazo technique. 
Um, and if you particularly had success for failures, using one of them in this temporary uh, sort of situation. Well, I mean, I agree with Dr. Abu Samra. This is David Feldman speaking. I, uh, I like to use the temporary pivotosis in younger patients when I know that if I do create a, a coronal angulation, I could always fix that. Or I haven't seen that too often. If I, I know I could if I just remove one at a time. Um, I am to use metazal. I like metazal technique for even coronal. Um, like Phil uses for angular, I use it for coronal as well for permanent. I've never reversed the metazal though. I've never used it as a, re as a reversible technique. I'm not sure it is that reversible. I use four screws, so I'm not sure how reversible it actually is. Um, so I use two screws crossing and then each down each column. Um, that's my permanent, so I can get them running right away as opposed to just drilling the epiphysis where I worry about them. I guess theoretically worry about them breaking their epiphysis if I let them go play sports. So I do use Metazow for those, that permanent epiphysiotesis, um, and I've had good results with it without coronal uh, angulation. But I agree that I think that using eight play, we're using some type of tension band play is a uh, is fraught, and I think you have to watch, as you said. All right, well, let's actually move on. Uh, Dr. Feldman, let's get to your team's work. Uh, your abstract is called Novel Treatment for Improving Knee Range of Motion in Patients with Arthrogryposis and Severe Knee Flexion Deformity. So in this study, uh, you were report on the first 27 patients using this technique, that, and you have 18-month follow-up on them, though your recent paper you sent to me shows that you've now done this in about 143 knees. Um, patients received, just to dumb it down a little bit, it's basically posterior capsule release, perineal derby compression, and a very proximal femoral shortening, possible derotation. Um, mean flexion contracture using this technique decreased from 50 degrees to 9 degrees, with extension being a little bit compromised, 101 to 83 degrees. But this was a total improvement of arc of motion from 45 degrees to 74 degrees that was maintained. So based on those results, this sounds like a promising new procedure in that it doesn't just reorient your range of motion, but it actually expands your range of motion. Um, and I will just, on a personal note, just say that last year I did reach out to you and your co-author, Aaron Hoosier. You were kind enough to share this technique to me. And so I used it um, with a N of two, uh, one patient, two knees. And I was actually quite happy and uh, proud of those results. And so with that, I'll actually turn it over to our moderators so they can reel me in and temporize my enthusiasm a little bit. Um, <laughs> Phil and Megan, go ahead. I will. Um, I'll be happy to start. I've been looking forward to this discussion, and uh, I did have the opportunity to see some of your successes when I was visiting your institution a couple of years ago. And I'm sure um, a lot of this is more detailed in your manuscript, but I just wanted to, to start by asking, do you have a, a threshold or a severity or grade of knee contracture where you think this um, procedure is most optimal? And is there an age? And if not, for lesser degrees of flexion deformity, for instance, do you change your technique or are you still using the same um, same sort of protocol? So thanks, Megan. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that you don't necessarily have to shorten femurs for a small deformity. I guess we can discuss whether I think anterior hemiepiphysiotesis is a good operation. I, I don't think it's a good operation in a young patient, if you're asking me that. So I think if you have a 25-degree flexion deformity in an arthropodic patient, I don't think that it's useful to do anterior hemiepiphysiotesis because they will recontract. And then you'll do doing it again, and you ruin the knee eventually. Um, I think the knee, you lose the posterior condyles, you lose the ability to flex. So in an older patient around 
you know, a small degree of contracture nearing the end of growth. Sure, anterior hemipiphyseoidesis for 20 degree deformity is a great operation. It's been shown in articles and it works and I've done it as well, especially if they recur. But I think that there's no limit to how big a deformity I can do with this. I mean, I, I use this for Escobar syndrome with some various uh, changes in it. And those are about 120, 130 degree uh, deformities. Obviously, you can't get the same results, I don't think, but you can use sort of the same similar technique of, and the key is just to free up everything. And the shortening is really, that proximal shortening is what loosens up all your soft tissues. Because if any of you have done Escobar, which is the ultimate arthrogripotic patient, right, the posterior tibial nerve is sitting under the skin posteriorly. So that is your, if you drew the triangle, that is your limiting factor. So if you don't shorten, unless you want to, people have written about this, unless you want to graft the posterior tibial tendon, which I don't want to do, um, then you have to do something to shorten this limb. And I, and I think increasing the arc, like Craig said, is really the key. And I, I'm not happy that we've lost some flexion in some of our patients. And I think that that's something we're really working on now is to mean, you know, we always thought, just get the extension, just get that knee straight and keep it straight. And we get that within five, I mean, now it's like five degrees, I think we're down to in the last, you know, in the last uh, 60 patients. So we really can keep them really straight, but the key is to keep that flexion. So even getting more than 90 degrees is my, is my goal. Um, and just maintaining it. It's a lot of physical therapy. It's a lot of work on the parents' part as well for exercising. But it really does, it does work. So Dr. Feldman, this uh, Phil in Baltimore, um, this is one of the things that I really like about what we do in limb deformity, that you get a chance to really think about the anatomy, what you want to do, make a plan, and then do it. Can you go through the decision process for you know, proximal versus distal femoral osteotomy for the shortening and why you choose proximal in this? So we'll talk about type 1. So my, sorry, my, my classification of these type 1s are these flexion deformities, these flexion contractures. So in those, in order to extend them, you need a lever arm. So the problem with distal lengthening, distal uh, shortening, is that you have no lever arm to shorten. You know, you're seeing this with the supracondylar femur and you're trying to extend the knee, but you have no lever arm, and you have no way of even fixing it to put a plate on. You, you, know, you can't really get either good you know, a lever arm to straighten it, because what we do is I loosen the perineal nerve, I go all the way up to the sciatic nerve, everything is freed, and then I put a rod and some wires to protect the physis from the osteotomy, through the osteotomy site, and then you lever the entire leg slowly into full extension, and you hear, you know, and you, and you can shorten as much as you want. You bring you know, the leg up as much as you want to decide how much shortening you'll do at that point. So I think that having a proximal osteotomy gives you the opportunity to do as much as you want because you can keep on short, you can, you can almost shorten as much as wherever it overlaps your proximal femur and it gives you a lever arm to extend the knee. So I think, so that's why I think proximal for that. Having said that, in an extension type now, where we can't flex the knee, which I call it type two, whatever we, and we think, I think those are more challenging, actually. There's less, less common, but more challenging. In that case, I would do a distal femoral osteotomy, actually osteotomy, and I'd shorten them through distally. And that allows me, number one, I can actually pick up the tubercle now. Even in a young patient, I'll, I'll do like a, um, a uh, gramond where I basically just cut the, uh, like I cut the cartilage of the apophysis, and I will actually lift up the, the patellar tendon and release the knee through the knee to get the knee to flex. And that's, and then I can shorten the femur distally because then I'm just trying to get it to flex. And that's what I will do. So I think that 
you're right. I think we think about these in terms of what we're doing, but in the, in the ones I reported, which are the flexion types, a much more common type, proximal is really the, is the key to the op is one of the keys to the operation. Do you think the the relative origins of the hamstrings versus the quad play into that? Because I was thinking by being proximal, you're above almost all of the origin of the quad except the rectus, but you're still below a lot of the origin of of the hamstrings. Or is that a red herring? I think it's a red herring. I don't think that the musculature in these flexion deformities is the real problem. I think the hamstrings are a problem, obviously, but we release them anyway. I might I. I release them, I take I cut the pterygium if they have a pterygium. So I'm cutting all the structures I can cut. I think it's the neurovascular bundle person. I think it's a you reach a point where you just cannot. It's periosteum, it's perichondrium, it's all kinds of things. But basically, I don't think it's the origins of the muscle that really make a difference by showing them. I could be wrong. Um, this is Megan. I have another question. Can you describe your post-operative protocol um, to, to maximize this joint motion and then to maintain it or reduce the risk of recurrence over time? Yeah, it's great. So that's important. I think it's as important as the, as actually the operation is the post-op management. So I actually don't put them in any cast. I don't think we should cast these children. And I don't put a wire across their knee to hold it straight either, because I think that just makes them very stiff. So they go into just a regular knee immobilizer afterwards, post-operatively, you know, a soft wrap and a knee immobilizer. And they really start therapy right after they leave the hospital. And that entails basically beginning to flex and extend their knee, getting full extension, letting gravity flex their knee. And then they go right into therapy the following week, physical therapy. At two weeks, they get fitted for a KAFO with a ratchet hinge knee, which is set a little bit anteriorly, right? A little bit anteriorly and often a little bit proximal to allow if there's any posterior translation, although we can talk about posterior translation and how to deal with that. But you can basically put the hinge there. Then that hinge, if it's a little posterior, a little anterior, will bring the tibia a little bit more anterior as you extend through the ratchet knee. So they wear the KFO at night in extension when they sleep. And then during the day, they're in physical therapy and they're moving their knee. So it's really just about movement. They never stop moving their knee. And if the parents go home, they go home with videos to continue that therapy um, for weeks and weeks. And they sleep, they should be staying in the KFO. And I think if I see the failures, which is the most I've seen is a 30 degree recurrence, that's the highest degree, then that person never wore a KFO at night. So I think you need to really wear the KFO. And I think that they have to really agree to the post-operative management. If they can't do it, and if you can't get physical therapy where you are and you're, or you're unwilling to really do that, I don't think they should have the operation. Because I think it will fail. It will just, I mean, arthroposis wants to get stiff again. You put them in a cast for two weeks, they will be as stiff as they were when you started the operation. Dr. Feldman, I think uh, we're at institutions with fairly similar mindsets that, you know, staying within striking distance of the surgical team and the therapists are really cornerstones for success in a lot of things. How long do you tell a patient to expect to stay, you know, within striking distance of the institution when they have this done? I mean, it to be reasonable. I mean, that's, 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 I'd love them to spend six weeks, right? I would love them to spend six, uh, you know, weeks down in Florida, enjoying the sun and, and uh, getting their knees to move because then I can get them to walk. So I usually walk them at four weeks post-op. So um, I really try to get them to walk at four weeks. So I love them to spend six weeks of their walking before they go home. Um, but they all can't. And then we do video conferencing and we send them home with videos and we send them and they, they consult our therapists. So they remain, you can remain virtually attached and not just necessarily but connected, you have to remain connected. They've got to call us with problems 
and the therapist, their therapist usually talk to our therapist. So I think there are ways of creating relationships, especially like the last year has taught us how to do that for all of us. Um, and there's ways of doing that from afar, but I, yeah, I would prefer them spending six weeks and I do both at the same time now, both knees at the same time. So. Well, thank you all for that uh, discussion. It's a promising, uh, promising new technique and looking forward to hearing more about it. Um, we're going to move on to our last uh, panelist of the night. So we have uh, Vanna Rocky, who's presenting her group's work titled Patient Reported Promise Assessment in Pediatric Patients with Tibial Deficiency, Fibular Deficiency, and Proximal Focal Femoral Deficiency. This is a multicenter study. So in this study, they characterized promise scores from 138 patients with lower extremity deficiencies, either PFFD, fibular deficiency, or tibial deficiency, used mobility scores, and they found that they were similar to typically developing patients in the fibular deficiency cohort, yet they showed mild impairment in the PFFD and tibial deficiency patients. If you had bilateral fibular deficiency or tibial deficiency, those patients had lower mobility promise scores than unilateral, and they also found that bilateral femoral deficiency patients had worse pain interference scores as well. So, uh, Vanna, you concluded that the promise mobility scores seem to distinguish functional differences among patients with lower extremity differences. And with that, I will turn it over to Phil and Megan to discuss the importance of this work. I'll take the first question here. I noticed um, a strikingly high rate of knee fusions, um, which is not what we see here in Baltimore in, in these patients, is that part of the treatment protocol or do you have a strange subset? Um, so this was done in my fellowship um, at Shriners Hospitals in Northern California. Um, and the vast majority of, of knees were fused in functional hips um, for those kids. That was just what they um, trended towards across all of the Shriners hospitals that participated in the study. Okay. So there's surgical knee fusions. They're not congenital knee fusions. Correct. All right. That makes sense. Um, I have another question. You know, there was a, a comment you said that severity, you know, in the classification <laughs> systems were not indicative of the promise scores. I can't say I'm in love with promise scores overall, but yeah. If the severity doesn't predict the promise score, or the promise score doesn't predict this, the severity, is the score useless or are the classification systems poor? Yeah, that's a good question. So we had some difficulty deciding on how to, to determine severity. Um, so we chose common classifications that would approximate severity in each of the groups. Um, but I think that that could be further elucidated um, in another way since we didn't find a difference or the differences just doesn't matter. Gotcha. Did you correlate at all, like the type or the level of amputation, which I would presume may have some sort of impact on the promise score, um, as opposed just to the the type of deficiency and the severity? So the actual treatment correlating at all with the the promise scores? Yeah. So we did have most of that information, but it wasn't across the board for all the patients, so we couldn't um, and analyze it separately with the few patients that had everything. Um, but the severity scores that we used were meant to approximate kind of where that amputation level would be based on how bad their deficiencies were. Um, but I think that would be a good thing to look at in future studies with more patients to see, okay, well, what level of amputation does this actually approximate and does that matter? Great. Do you have, do you have any sense of 
how these compare to promise scores in post-traumatic amputations? Um, we didn't look at that in terms of this study, so I'm well, not sure. Might be something interesting to look at. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the Shriner systems, because they tend to have really excellent prosthetic labs, tend to generate, you know, large groups of, you know, post-traumatic. The, the team in Utah, anybody from probably a four or five state area that had a traumatic amputation would end up at the Shrine. Um, you know, our institution in Baltimore and Dr. Feldman mm -hmm. in Florida don't tend to have a large number of amputees, although we do some, but typically people travel for reconstruction, not amputation. But the, yeah. the traumatic group would be very interesting comparison because that's a group we understand reasonably well through adulthood because of the military experience, whereas congenital amputees in adulthood are, you know, kind of a black box, realistically. Yeah, I think that's a great point because the multidisciplinary um, teams available at the Shriners hospitals could really look into this a lot further with the gate lab, with the prosthetics department, um, and then pain management, ortho, um, everyone on the same kind of team to figure out what's really working for them. Did you have any rotation plasties in the group? I, there I were a few, yes. Were they a different subset or not? There not? weren't enough to compare. Gotcha. That's the, the plague of pediatric orthopedics. Mm -hmm. This is Megan. I have one final question. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Phil. Um, I was just curious if you use this information at all in your institutions and counseling patients that are, um, you know, weighing treatment options such as um, you know, amputation versus a limb salvage reconstruction. And the other part to that is, do you have any plans to study these outcome uh, measures in patients who have the opposite treatment of limb reconstruction with salvage approach? Yeah, I think the best part of the counseling for this is that the kids tend to do really well. So you can really tell the families that their kids are going to be okay. They cope really wonderfully. They don't have a lot of pain interference, and they can do all the things that most kids can do. I do think that they're looking to utilize this more widely um, because the study is still open. Well, that is terrific, and I think that's probably all the time we have um, for our uh, for our abstract. So, I do want to thank all the authors uh, for being our panelists tonight. Um, congratulations to you and your research teams for your successes and for bringing your findings to the rest of the Peds Orthopedic community. Um, I really want to thank our moderators. So, again, um, thank you, Dr. Megan Young, Dr. Phil McClure, for your high level discussion and your preparation. Again, our panelists tonight. Um, we're Vanna Rocky uh, in Portsmouth, Virginia. We had Sam Abu Samra uh, from Children's Hospital of LA, and we had David Feldman from Paley Institute in West Palm Beach, Florida. Um, thank you guys again, and um, thanks to all our listeners. Again, you can subscribe to the feed and send any feedback to pedsorthopodcast at gmail.com. Hope everyone stays safe and hope to see at least some of our listeners and panelists in Dallas. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you. Great.